The Christmas season is, is just the greatest of all seasons. And just to present myself just a little vulnerable this morning, I want to let you know that I love watching Hallmark Christmas movies. I anticipate them every year. In fact, in July, when Hallmark has their Christmas movies on, I watch them in July in anticipation of what's going to happen in November and December. And to understand Hallmark movies, I know they're predictable. I know they're a little cheesy, but but I'm a romantic at heart, see? And, And I love Hallmark movies. But that's not what makes a season great for me, although I enjoy doing that. In fact, this year we started a new tradition with all my girls, and that is to bring them all over to the house, bought them Hallmark socks and Hallmark mugs and Hallmark popcorn bowls and had them over for a Hallmark movie night. You know, we'd feed them dinner and we'll, we'll sit around the table and talk and have hot cocoa and, and coffee and popcorn and, and cuddle up and watch a Hallmark movie. The one of my choice, of course. It's my choice. But then uh, just had that tradition with my, with my girls because all but one has moved on and they're married. They have their own kids now. And just to have that one little moment of time where I spend with my girls. But yet that's not what makes the season great. What makes the season great is, is the Christ. And I love studying the Christmas story. It never gets old for me. That's why we spend the whole month of December talking about the coming of the Messiah. I can't think of anything better to do than just that. In the whole month of December, I'm enraptured with the truth of the Scripture and the promises, the prophecies, and the particular elements of all those things as they pertain to the coming Messiah. I marvel at the working of God. But if I was to ask you this morning, what is the one thing you learned about the Christ over the last 26 days of this month, what would you say? What would be the one thing you learned? Maybe it was something that wasn't new. Maybe it was something that wasn't necessarily revealed to you, but was reinforced in your mind, reiterated in your mind. But it's something that maybe you had forgotten and it had been rekindled in your mind. What would it be? Would it signify the fact that when Jesus came, everything about his birth identified his humility? Maybe that's what you learned. The humble birth of our Savior. How it identified his humility. How he made himself, as Hebrew says, a little lower than the angels. How he took on flesh, the incarnation of our God. Maybe that's what you learned. Maybe, maybe you learned about how the birth of Christ exemplified his humanity. That everything about the Christ was the son that was given, the child that was born. So he could become that faithful and merciful high priest for you and me. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, you learned that with the coming of the Messiah, it clarified his ministry. That he would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. In this holiday season, unlike any other, 
that ministry has been completely clarified in your mind. Or maybe this Christmas you learned that the coming of the Messiah solidified your destiny. In other words, what you believe about this Savior who is Christ the Lord that was born in Bethlehem determines where you will spend eternity. In this holiday season, your destiny was solidified. Maybe you learned about how this coming Messiah glorified his deity. His deity was fully put on display, that he was God in the flesh, that God had come down to man and his deity had been glorified unlike at any other time. Or maybe, just maybe, you learned this Christmas season that the birth of Christ verified his prophecy. That would be true. Of the 333 prophecies concerning the arrival of the Messiah, 109 of them were fulfilled in his first coming, leaving 224 of them yet to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled in his second coming. So 109 of them were fulfilled in his first coming, and what took place was the verification of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Maybe that's what you learned. I don't know. But maybe you learned this, that the birth of the Christ child magnified his sovereignty. Magnified his sovereignty. That God was in charge of every particular element of the birth of Christ. That's why the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. In other words, at the exact time, at the precise time, God sent forth his son. He didn't send him too early. He wasn't late on his arrival. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. What a remarkable statement. That he would come at just the right time, when it was right religiously, when it was right culturally, when it was right right militarily, when it was right politically. He came at just the right time. When man had, had seen his lawlessness because they'd been held against the standard of the law, seen his helplessness, his hopelessness, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It's just, it's magnificent to see. And that's going to lead us into our point this morning, because if you've been with us, we know we're, we're here to celebrate. There's a divine invitation given for us to celebrate. And what are we celebrating? Well, we're celebrating, number one, the communication of unspeakable joy. 
I bring you good news of great joy, the angel said. A joy that's unspeakable because the gift itself is indescribable. It's unspeakable. And so what was communicated on that dark night was joy had come down to earth. That's what we celebrate. We've invited to celebrate the expression of unbelievable mystery. The mystery around the incarnation, the mystery around the conception, the mystery around everything concerning the Christ child. That's why 1 Timothy 6, 15 tells us, this is the mystery of godliness that God was revealed in the flesh. That's what we celebrate. We've been invited to celebrate the, the liberation of unbearable captivity. We've been held in chains by Satan. The chain is the fear of death, and he, he holds that grip on us until we are liberated, until we are set free, until we have had those chains loosed, and we've been set free to serve the true and living God that no longer are we captive by Satan to do his will, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.26, but our eyes have been opened to see the beauty of the Lord. The divine invitation is to celebrate the exaltation of unfathomable majesty. Isaiah 9, verse number 6, speaks so clearly about this Prince of Peace, this mighty God, this wonderful counselor, this everlasting father, the unfathomable majesty of this child who's come to earth. And then on Christmas Eve, we talked about, we celebrate the benefaction of unachievable mercy. We have been the recipients of something freely given, the mercy of the living God. But the celebration is not over. Because a celebration is not a seasonal celebration, it's a continual celebration. It's a celebration that goes throughout the entire year, throughout our entire lifetime. Don't think you can celebrate Christmas just on the 25th of December, or just a couple of days before, or a couple of days after. If that's what you think, you've missed it. You've missed the meaning of Christmas. It's all about a continual celebration all throughout our lives. And that's where point number six comes in. And point number six is this, that there is a revelation of unsurpassable sovereignty. We've been invited to celebrate the revelation of unsurpassable sovereignty. There's something about this birth, this coming of the Messiah at the fullness of time that is unsurpassable because it speaks to us about the controlling power of the living God. I love what it says in, in Psalm 99, verse number one. The Lord reigns. The Lord's in charge. Well, when you look at sovereignty, it's good to know the, the difference between sovereignty and providence, right? Sovereignty, in simple details, God runs the show. Providence are the particulars of how God runs the show. That's the difference. Sovereignty is an overarching term that God is in charge of everything, that God directly causes or consciously permits everything that happens in the world. That's sovereignty. 
But providence are the particular details that take place throughout the plan. Because God's in charge of that. So the Lord reigns. The Lord's in charge. And that is vocalized and that is dramatized all throughout the Christmas story. The Lord reigns. Then it says, let the people tremble. Let the people tremble. Because God's in charge, you need to, you need to quiver. You need to shake. And then it says this, Psalm 99, he is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. In other words, because God's in charge, because he reigns, you should quiver and quake. Because God's in charge. And isn't it interesting that when you read the Christmas story, the major theme is, is fear. Zacharias feared when Gabriel came. Great fear came upon him. Great fear came upon Mary when the angel Gabriel came to her, right? When the glory of the Lord shone all around the shepherds, they were terribly frightened because fear engulfed the Christmas story. So the Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. Let the, let the earth quake. Why? Because God's in charge. But you know what I've come to notice? That we don't quiver because God's in charge. We don't quake because God's in charge. We quarrel because God's in charge. You ever notice how much we like to quarrel with God? We like to argue with God, debate with God, as if, as if in our own sinful minds, we can reason with an infinite, pure, holy mind of God. As if somehow I, I have a better idea than God has. And I love to quarrel with God. In fact, Jeremiah said these words in Lamentations chapter 3. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? Unless the Lord has commended it. Is there anybody who speaks and it happens? No. But when God speaks, it happens. When God decided to create the world, he said, let there be this, let there be that, let there be this, and there it was. He spoke the universe into existence. Who can speak and it happened? Nobody. Unless God, God commands it. Then he says this. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? See, we want to quarrel with God about that. We want to get, become angry with God about that. We like it when good comes forth from God. We don't like it when ill or calamity comes forth from God. And Jeremiah would say this, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? How can a sinful man offer a complaint? How can a sinful man quarrel with the true and living God? 
Isaiah would say something similar. Isaiah chapter 45, verse number six, the Lord says, I am the Lord and there is none other. We would agree with that. I am the one forming light and creating darkness. I just love that because the Bible tells us that God creates darkness. He creates light. He creates darkness. Darkness is not something that was there before the world began. There was just nothing because God had to create darkness. He creates it. It says, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. Now we want to quarrel with God. We want to say, wait a minute. You are the creator of that which is good and well, but also the creator of calamity? Why would you do that, God? And we ask and quarrel with God. So Isaiah says, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Cursed is the one who quarrels with his maker. Isaiah says you should be cursed if you want to sit and debate and argue with God. You have no right to do that because you're a sinner. You are separated from the true and living God. Who do you think you are that you can quarrel with God? Instead, quiver under the authority of God. Quake under the authority of God. Be quiet under the authority of God. But certainly don't quarrel with the plan and purposes of God. All that is so incredibly important. The Bible says this, book of Ecclesiastes, seventh chapter. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So three particular passages speak of the fact that God reigns. He is sovereign. He is in charge. He rules over everything, so much so that he creates well-being. He creates calamity. He speaks, and from his mouth comes goodness as well as ill. If God decides to bend something, you cannot straighten it. In the day of adversity, understand that you need to consider what God has done. In the day of calamity, be happy. All that to say is that God is completely in charge of everything. He runs the show. That's why the birth of the Messiah is the revelation of unsurpassable sovereignty. So let me try to explain it to you today. Trying to set the tone. I know it's hard to, 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 to digest everything all at once. I know you got all that Christmas goodies in you from yesterday, and you're starting to doze off and fall asleep already, and I understand that, but I'm going to do my best to keep you awake. I know it's dark in here, and it's, it's cool, but that's why we want to keep you awake. But, but think about this if you're a Jew, right? 
And think about the sovereignty of God as it pertains to the birth of the Messiah. I sit and I study this thing and I, I am overwhelmed. Remember Genesis chapter 49, verse number 10. We know that, that all throughout the book of Genesis, there is this, these, these dots being connected about the coming Messiah. We know in Genesis 3.15, he is the coming seed, right? We know in Genesis 6, he is the coming shelter or safe house because the ark was a type of Christ. We know that in Genesis 22, he is the coming substitute. We know in Genesis 28, he's the coming staircase that is the only way to heaven. But when you come to Genesis 49, we understand that the Messiah is the coming Shiloh. Listen to what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh translated to mean the one to whom it belongs. To what belongs? The scepter. In other words, Shiloh is a king. He's the Messiah. And every Jew would know that this is a, a testimony to the arrival of the Messiah. But in Genesis chapter 38, Judah commits sin, immorality. So Moses, who is writing the Pentateuch, right? He writes down the book of Genesis. He also writes in the book of Numbers, or excuse me, the book of Deuteronomy, these words. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord, none of his descendants. Whoa! Moses is writing down, through inspiration of the Spirit of God, that no one who is born from illegitimacy shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And yet, the Messiah will come from the line of Judah. Genesis 49.10. But in Genesis chapter 38, Judah committed gross sin. That would mean that there would be an illegitimate son who could not sit on the throne. Who will be the king of Israel? Who will be the Messiah? Read on. It says, even to the 10th generation shall enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, as Moses is writing this, he's writing down that there has to be 10 generations that take place in order for someone from the line of Judah to enter into the assembly of the Lord, to be a part of the leadership of Israel. Lo and behold, the 10th generation from Judah is King David. King David. Remember, Israel asked for a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations had a king, right? And so he said, give us a king. And Samuel warned them, you know what? You have a king. He's called the Lord God of Israel. He's the king. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. But that wasn't good enough for them. Give us a king. So God couldn't give him a king from the tribe of Judah. So he gave him a king from the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Saul. But when Saul disqualified himself, it was now the 10th generation from Judah. Now God could give him or give them his king. And King David was anointed king of Israel. See how God works all that together? 
but it gets better than that. It gets even more uh, discombobulated. Because if you read the book of Matthew, in the genealogy of the Messiah is a man by the name of Jeconiah or Coniah. And listen to what the Bible says about Jeconiah. Jeremiah 22, verse number 28. I remember Jeremiah preached, and God told him that you just keep preaching, but nobody's going to listen. So no one listened to what Jeremiah said, but we have a record of what Jeremiah said, which is a good thing, because we know what they were told, even though they never listened. So in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse number 28, it says, is this man, Coniah, or Jeconiah, a despised shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his ascendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Whoa. So Jeremiah's writing this down and Jeremiah's preaching this to the people. He's thinking, wait a minute. We know that the Messiah is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is a Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, a scepter. But Jeconiah is in the line of David. And yet, there's not one of his descendants that will sit on the throne because he's cursed forever. Now, he had seven children, but none of them sat on the throne. And yet, Jeremiah goes on to preach in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will raise up, a brand, raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So Jeremiah says, I will rescue David. I will rescue Israel. I will send my Messiah. Well, wait a minute. How can you send him? The line is cursed. The revelation of unsurpassable sovereignty. Is overwhelming because if you're with us a few weeks ago, you know that we read Jeremiah chapter 31, verse number 22, which says, For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth, a woman will encompass a man. Speaking of the virgin birth of the Messiah. See, this is so important because you see, Jesus is from David, the line of David, the kingly line. But the virgin birth is how God gets around that which is natural and plugs in that which is supernatural. You see, Joseph couldn't have a son because the line was cursed. So Mary who was from the line of David, through his son Nathan, that's in Luke chapter 3. Joseph was from the line of David through his son 
Solomon. So Joseph had the kingly royal right to the throne, but Mary had the bloodline to the throne. And so there is a virgin birth that takes place where Mary never knew a man, and through adoption, Christ becomes the legal heir to the throne of David. God's unsurpassable sovereignty. That's why, that's why when Jesus came to earth, nobody ever argued that he was the son of David. Because all they had to do was go down to the temple and look up the genealogy and all the records and know that Jesus was a descendant of David through Solomon and through Nathan. The bloodline through Nathan, the legal and royal line through Joseph. You see, God does all that stuff. And as you look at all the particulars of the promises, how God puts them all together, because if I'm in the Old Testament, I'm reading this thinking, okay, how can the Messiah come? And that's why in Jeremiah 31, every rabbi before the coming of the Messiah interpreted that verse as the virgin birth, because that was the answer to the problem of Jeconiah and his line being cursed. God sovereignly orchestrated everything. So turn back with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. Now, in those days, verse number one, what days are those? In those days when Herod ruled in Israel. In those days when the angel Gabriel had come to Zacharias. In those days when the angel Gabriel had come to Mary. In those days when John the Baptist had already been born, the forerunner of the Messiah. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar is a title like king or emperor. Augustus means honorable one. The man's name was, 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 was Gaius Octavius. That was his real name, okay? But they called him Caesar Augustus. And it says, <clears throat> a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why does he tell us that? Because it gives us the time of the birth of the Messiah when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So, if God reigns, if he is sovereign, he rules over all, how does the Lord get a pregnant girl, because she was around 13 or 14 years of age, that's when they were betrothed in those days, Joseph being maybe that age or a little older, how do you get this young girl who's pregnant 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem? They're not going to willingly go to Bethlehem. 
Why would you travel if you're about to give birth? I mean, you're not going by, by plane or bus or car. You're going either on the backside of a donkey or a donkey pulling some kind of trailer, and you're bouncing up and down as you're going down from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. It's not a smooth ride. There weren't paved roads. Think about it. So how does God orchestrate the events? Because we know what Micah 5 verse number 2 says, that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. We know that. The scribes knew that. That's why when the Magi came in Matthew chapter 2, when they came looking for he who was born king of the Jews, Herod went to the scribes and says, who is this one who's going to be born king of the Jews? Where will he be born? And they quote Matthew 5 verse number 2. Luke never mentions Micah. Matthew does. But you see, you need to move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. How do you do that? God does it. He uses a pagan ruler, a pagan leader, a pagan governor to bring about his purposes for his people. See, God uses anybody and everybody because he reigns. He's in charge. So you either quiver, quake, or you quarrel with the fact that he's in charge. And Mary could have said to Joseph, I'm not, I'm not going to Bethlehem. I'm about to give birth. But in the recesses of their mind, they knew the prophecies. They knew about the virgin birth, Isaiah 7:14. It had been quoted to Joseph by the angel. So they knew about the virgin birth. They knew about the promises, the prophecies of the arrival of the Messiah. They knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, everything goes into motion. We must go to Bethlehem because that's where he will be born. But they would not have gone had it not been for a census because they had to register. They had to register their family, their belongings, their property, that's what they had to do. The Roman government was the IRS of today. Everything had to be legitimized. But you had to do it in the town from the tribe in which you were born or from. And they were from Bethlehem, the city of David, the king of Israel. That's why it says they went to the city of David. Now, the city of David is that that 30-acre property called the Hill of Ophel that ascends up to Mount Moriah, that is called the city of David, and it is. That's where Jerusalem was. That's where David conquered the Jebusite city and became king of Israel. But Bethlehem is where David was from. It's called the city of David, Bethlehem. His father Jesse was a Bethlehemite. And so they had to go to Bethlehem. And listen to what it says. It says, <clears throat> in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. How many days were they there? 
doesn't tell us. A day? Three? Seven? Ten? We don't know. It just says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now think about that. That's the detailed scriptural point of the birth of the Messiah. That's all there is. Don't you wish there was more? But there wasn't. That's all there is. That's all we know. She gave birth to her firstborn, the Messiah. And where did she give birth to him? In a place that was not a comfortable place. It was a stable. It was a, well, I think it's probably Migdali Dare, the Tower of the Flock, Micah 4 8, Genesis chapter 35. The Tower of the Flock is on the north side of Bethlehem. Could very well be that place. Who knows? But it wasn't a clean place. It wasn't like there was a hospital there and she could go in and, you know, <clears throat> take an epidural if she needed one of those or whatever it is she could do to subside her pain. No, none of that. There are no doctors and nurses. It was just Mary and Joseph. And there she gave birth because it had been prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They had to get to Bethlehem. And so God would use a pagan king, a pagan ruler, to bring about his sovereign purposes. Notice what it says. It says, In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged or betrothed to him. If you go back to Matthew, it says that after the angels spoke to Joseph, he took Mary as his wife. So which is it? Is she his wife? Or is she betrothed to him? The answer is yes. How do we know that? He took her, she, he took her as his wife, right? But he kept her a virgin until the birth of the Messiah. So, although they were legally married, they did not consummate the marriage until after the birth of the Messiah. So, he treated her as if they were betrothed, although legally they were married. So, both are true. Make sense? Sure it does. And so that's how, that, that's how the Bible speaks so clearly as to what happens. And it, it tells us very clearly that there was no room for them in the end. So there wasn't a popular place for them to be. They weren't in, in, in some location somehow. There were no relatives there to take them in. Because of the census, there were the soldiers that were there. There, there were the Jewish leaders that were there. All the rooms had been taken. But yet... If you believe that the Messiah would be born at the Tower of the Flock, which I do, and he, there was no room for them in the inn, so they went to a place where there would be a, a manger, a feeding trough, and she would wrap him in swaddling clothes as they would do those lambs that were birthed there, 
because they wanted to keep them all together, keep them tightly wound. You can see the the unsurpassable sovereignty of God at work because if he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, he's the lamb of God, he'll be born where all the lambs slain for Passover are born. God's in charge. So, what does that mean for you? It means everything. Because God is in charge of your life as well. Everything. Every detail. Nothing escapes his notice. As you finish out this year and embark on a new year, you can bank on this. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We don't speculate. We don't think. We don't wish. We know. How do we know? Because our Lord reigns. See, this creates so much confidence in my life. Why? Because if all things work together for good, I know that it's Christmas season and you, you bake cookies, you bake pies, you bake cakes, right? I don't, but, but you do. And, and, you, and you take all the different ingredients and you mix them all together. And if, if you're going to make, make a cake, you, you, you get the ingredients, you get, you get the flour and you, you get the sugar and you get the, the shortening and you get what, what all, the oil and all the different ingredients, right? You get the, the chocolate. And if you were to taste each of the ingredients on their own, some would be very, very bad, taste nasty. Others would taste very, very good. But when you put all the ingredients together and you put it in the oven, the cake, it tastes, it tastes great when it comes out, right? See, God is in the process of, of making and baking a cake out of your life. There are certain segments of my life that if you take them as they are, they don't taste very good. Other segments taste great. But if all things are working together for good, right, which they are, for those who are called according to his purpose, then when it all comes out, it's going to be super great. That's what God's doing. That's what God did in your life this year. That's what God's going to do in your life in the next year. It creates such great confidence in my life that God will take every element, every situation, everything that's ill, everything that's good, everything that's filled with calamity and tragedy and adversity and everything that's filled with joyous communion, puts them all together and works them out for his glory and my good. Not only does it create confidence in me, it causes great comfort in me because I know I don't think that all things were together for good. I know this. How? Because of the revelation of God's unsurpassable sovereignty. All I got to do is read the Bible and see how God takes all things and brings them all together. That brings comfort to my soul. I don't have to worry about this. I don't become anxious about what's going to happen today or tomorrow or the next year. God has got it all under control. Like he did for the birth of the Messiah. All the events leading up to the Messiah. It's all under his sovereign reign. If you learn anything this Christmas season, learn this. 
The story is a revelation of God's unsurpassable sovereignty and that he's in charge of every single detail of every prophecy and promise that he gave in Scripture. That makes him in charge of everything in your life as well. He rules over all. Maybe learn to be quiet. Maybe learn to quiver and to quake and never quarrel under the fact that God reigns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Truly, Lord, you are great and worthy of praise. Our prayer, Father, is that you go before us and that we trust you, the sovereign creator of all things, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.